Well, today we're in uh, James chapter 5, so if you find your spot there in James chapter 5. Let me ask you a question, maybe float this scenario out there to you. What if you could read a letter, like a personal letter, from someone really important? Would you be interested in that? I mean, would you be interested to read something written to you from someone really important? And when I say really important, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about somebody like, like Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin or maybe somebody like Abraham Lincoln or George Washington or... Um, do a little different category. How about somebody like uh, Henry Ford or Alexander Graham Bell? If they wrote you a personal letter, I'd be interested to read that. I mean, I, th I think that would be interesting. But I'd want to make sure that I read the whole thing. I wouldn't want to read just part of it and then stop and put it down and say, well, that was all right. I'd want to read the whole thing. I'd want to make sure I didn't miss any word or any part of it. What about, though, if it was someone maybe a little closer to you? Maybe somebody you knew. Like, what if you could hold in your hand a personal letter from your great-great-great-grandfather addressed to you? Would you be interested to read that? Would you want to make sure you read every word and didn't miss any part of it? I would. I, I think, and this, maybe it sounds wrong, but I think I'd rather read that letter than read one from some famous person. Because the letter written from my great-great-great-grandfather would be more personal. It would, I think it would mean more to me because I was um, somehow connected to it, you know, as family. So the reason why I say that or ask those hypothetical questions is because here we are today at the end of a letter from James, who's a pastor, but the half-brother of Jesus, and he wrote it to us. Not directly, because he wrote it nearly 2,000 years ago, but I'm just saying he wrote it to the church, which means by extension he wrote it to us. So I want to try to just encourage us here as we get going here in this last little paragraph, this last passage of this letter, let's not zone out, let's not miss the ending of the letter, because the whole thing's important, because he wrote it to us, he wrote it to the church. And since we're part of the church, it's important to see everything. I mean, we've been, for the last, I don't know, what, 12 weeks or more? We've been going verse by verse through the whole book of James, and here we are at the end. So what, what has James taught us just already up to this point? He's talked to us about trials, about uh, maturity, Christian maturity. He's telling us to be joyful as we suffer, knowing that we have a reward coming from God. He's talked to us about the difference between simply hearing God's Word and actually 
doing God's Word. He's given us a, a deeper look into this relationship between having faith and, and actually working that out and, and doing something with it. In fact, he showed us that good works that we do are actually the evidence of true saving faith. We don't do works because we want to be saved. We do works because we have been saved. And that's evidence that Jesus is working in us because of what we do. He explained to us how important it is. If we're going to follow Jesus, we have to control our speech. He's talking about the, the tongue. He's talking about taming the tongue, how we, it's impossible to do. We have to keep a constant check on how we speak to one another because it's so dangerous. We need to show ourselves to be children of God. He taught us how to be humble as we submit ourselves to the sovereign leadership of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, he actually said, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. So there's, there's a reason to submit to God, because that's how we are able to resist our enemy and how the devil will run away from us, because he's running from our God. Finally, last week, James reminded us to be patient even when we're in the midst of suffering. Because we're in a world here, suffering trials and tribulations. We're making our way through this sinful world. But, but here's the, the ray of hope, the silver lining, or that, the light at the end of the tunnel. Jesus is coming soon. And we can look forward to the return of our King so we can be patient in suffering, even though it's not pleasant because our king is full of compassion and mercy so here we are at the end of the letter so what do you think the last few things james is going to say what do, what do you think he's going to say here this part i call it parting encouragement what do you think he's going to say at the end of his letter let's look and see what he writes here james chapter 5 we're going to start in verse 12 and then we'll finish out in verse 20 Follow along with me as I read. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He's to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church and they're to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who's sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three and a half years, three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death 
and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you speak to us today? Would you speak so clearly? Don't let us misunderstand. Help us to see your truth today. And then help us to be obedient. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last paragraph. Just a few verses, but James has got some important things still to tell us today. There's three major points in this last set of verses, and they're really pretty simple. But let me just tell you this as a warning before we get through them. It's almost unexpected because you would think, you know, when you get to the end of a letter, you kind of do a little conclusion, you know, and you say, all right, well, it's been good talking to you. I hope to see you soon or whatever, you know, some type of, some type of closing, and then you sign your name. Well, that's how we would write a letter. But he, he, he goes right up to the last sentence trying to help, trying to encourage, trying to help us know what we need to do how we need to live. So every little verse all the way up to the end is packed with uh, instruction, good instruction and encouragement. So here's the three points for today. Just three major points through these verses. Number one, tell the truth. So if you're writing this down, this is real short and simple. Number one, tell the truth. Number two, pray and confess. Number three, show Christian care. It's just that simple. Number one, tell the truth. Number two, pray and confess. Number three, show Christian care. In the, all this in the context of family. So let's start out verse 12 and, and see what James is saying here. Tell the truth, I said. Tell the truth. Truthfulness is vital. It's necessary. You see what he says at the beginning of verse 12? He says, but above all. It's almost like, well, really? That's the most important thing. Not necessarily in the whole letter, but what he's saying is, Truthfulness, honesty in the family of God is a vital component of living in the family of God, living as a Christian. He says, above all. In other words, James wants to highlight this probably because he sees it as getting at the ultimate issue of personal integrity. You want to be a person of integrity? You want to live as a, a witness to Christ? Well, truthfulness, honesty is at the foundation of that. We want to live for God. So here's, here's the thing about this, though. We need to avoid the presumption of dishonesty. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. James says, under the power of the Holy Spirit, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But let me break that down for you because this is really important. Really important. What do we say sometimes? Most of the time, how about this? We'll make a statement, whatever it is, doesn't matter, whatever we're talking about. We'll make a statement, and then we'll follow it with this phrase. I promise. Right? You ever said that? Like somebody asks you, hey, will you do this for me? I'll do it. I promise. Well, why would you have to say that? You ever thought about that before? Why would you have to say, I promise? Or why would you have to add something to your confirmation when you said, yes, I'll do that. But you follow, You didn't leave it there. You didn't just say, yes, I'll do it. You said, yes, I'll do that. Really, I will. Or, I promise. You know what that does? That assumes 
the other person that you're talking to is not going to believe you that you'll actually be truthful to do what you said, so you have to add, try to add some weight to it and say, no, 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 I promise, I promise. Well, why? Have you already proven yourself to not be trustworthy? So you feel like you have to add this subconsciously, you have to add this I promise to it? Why can't we just say, will you do this for me? Yes, I will. End of statement. Yes, I will. That's the point James is making. We presume that people view us as dishonest when we add words to our simple answer. He says, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, you know, there was a time in life when the, someone's word was enough. It didn't have to, well, let me, you've got to sign this contract. I need to, we need to sign on the dotted line. Let's date it, get it notarized. So then that way, if you don't fulfill, then we've got something in writing here to come back. What happened to, you remember when, uh, there's still a, I don't know why I'm thinking of car dealerships. There's still a, there's still a car dealer up in uh, West Columbia. And the guy, even on his commercials, he's, he's wearing his suit and he's doing his little sales pitch, you know, and he says, uh, Lexington Automotive and Truck Outlet, where a handshake makes a difference. And see, it's stuck in my head. I haven't seen it so, not, so much. But well, you know what he's saying? He's trying to go back to a time when you could look a man in the eye and shake his hand and agree to something. That was all you needed. You didn't have to go and fill out this pile of paperwork because if you owed somebody some money, you were going to pay them. If you agreed to do a particular job, you were going to do it. You know, you didn't have to go through all this other to give weight or to give um, security to an agreement because your word meant something. You understand what I'm saying? That's what James is, is pleading for us to go back to. We need to show, and this is understanding the context of the church, so he's talking to Christian folks. If you're going to follow Jesus, then your word should be sufficient for an agreement, for, you know, don't need a contract, don't need, don't need something extra to say to make sure the other party is going to believe you. You should have demonstrated by your actions so exhaustively that you are a, a man or a woman of their word that you just say yes or no and that's all that has to be said. Does that make sense? You see what he's saying? This word of a Christian should always be sufficient. Our truthfulness should be so consistent and dependable that we don't need an oath. Well, here. Before I believe you, put your hand on the Bible. Swear that this is going to be, be the truth. Now, just your word. Your, your word is sufficient because you have proven yourself to be a person of integrity because you're following Jesus. You see the connection? Tell the truth. Number two, pray and confess. Now, this goes from verse 13 all the way down to verse 18. Pray and confess. James asks some questions. He says, is anybody in the church suffering? And he's talking about uh, past experience, like the way the prophets suffered. I mean, I'm talking about persecution. Is anyone among you suffering? Well, what are you supposed to do? Pray. 
Pray to God. If you're following Jesus and suffering because of it, pray, pray to the Lord. Then he asked another question. Is any among you cheerful? Now, now we're talking about this emotional peace of mind. Are you joyful? Are you, are you at, at peace? Well, then praise the Lord. And not just, don't just say, well, praise the Lord as, a, as just a, a statement. Actually, praise the Lord. Sing praises to God. Because that's where your peace comes from. You understand? If you have peace today, if you're sitting here and you feel like, you know what? Everything's just, I just feel like everything's like it's supposed to be. Everything's good. Well, do you know who you have to thank for that? Jesus. And nobody else. It's not circumstance. It's not this person said something nice to me today, made me feel good. It's if you have peace in your heart, it's because of Jesus. Okay? So, so James is trying to make sure we point in bad times, is anyone suffering? In good times, is anyone cheerful? Whatever it is, your response should be to Jesus. If you're suffering, you pray. If you're cheerful at peace, you praise the Lord. But either way, you're addressing the same person, God. That's important. Look at the third question, though. This is when he goes into a little more detail. Is anyone in the church sick? That word really means, uh, in its full meaning, to, are, are you weak? Is there, is there something troubling you? Or have you experiencing weakness, sickness, frailty even? What's his solution for that? Call the elders of the church. So now we're getting the spiritual leadership involved. Because if this is happening to you, you need some support. Now, now we're getting a bigger picture of a spiritual family context, okay? So he says, call the elders of the church. What are the elders supposed to do? They're supposed, they're supposed to anoint the sick with oil in the name of the Lord. And it says the elders should pray over the one who is sick. Now, this is, this is an often misunderstood passage of Scripture, but it's, as often as it's misunderstood is about how often it's used or referred to. Yeah, hey, if you're sick, call the elders of the church, pray. Anoint with oil, pray. Okay? And that's what the Bible says, so we believe it, right? Believe what the Bible says? Can I get an amen on that? I hope. So the Bible says... The elders of the church should pray over the one who is sick, and it literally it says, having anointed them with oil. So that's why I listed the oil first, even though in the text it says, call for the elders of the church to pray over him, anointing him with oil. There's really a, a past tense there. So, so what it should say is, having anointed him with oil. So you anoint with oil, and then you pray. That's the order, if you want to get you know, specific here. But then it says, look at verse 15. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. He has committed sins. They will be forgiven him. Now, there's a lot going on in these next two sentences, so let me try to break it down uh, as, as simply as I can as far as the order and then the actual application of what James is, is teaching here because this is it's, it's important for our understanding. There's a word there in verse 16 says, Therefore... So I want you to see how verse 15 and, and 16 are connected in that what James says to us in verse 16 has a bearing on verse 15. Let me, let me explain to you what I mean. When you look at your Bible, everybody got a Bible? Or a phone with a Bible on it? When you look at these two verses, I want you to see 
the result of verse 16. So this is very important. Because James is talking to the church, right? Church folks. He says, therefore, what are you to do? Church, what are you to do? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Why? What's the result? Healing, so that you may be healed, right? So how does that have a bearing on the previous verse, 15? Because in 15, James says that the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So what is assumed in verse 15 based on what you read in verse 16? If somebody, look, look, if somebody's sick and suffering, is it like a, just a mathematical equation? Well, let's go get some oil, let's anoint them, let's pray for them automatically, healing. That's not how it works, is it? God's not a, like an old mythical genie. Well, I get three wishes. Come on, grant them. Let's go, God. Get with it. You said. That's not how it works. What if God's will... To heal someone is to take them on to heaven. Full and complete healing. That you can't, you know what? All right. Follow this with me, okay? What happens if you receive supernatural physical healing on this earth? You're still going to die. Do you hear me? Your life on earth may be extended, but you didn't get a get out of death free card. If you get healed on earth, you're still going to die one day. It's not a free pass. So we've got to try to look at this thing through spiritual eyes and understand. When God heals, even when He heals on this earth, it's not forever to be on this earth. It's temporary until you are fully healed in heaven in His presence. The ultimate healing is in the presence of Jesus. We, we cannot forget that because when we, when we get temporarily healed on this earth... Sometimes we view physical healing on earth as the end-all, be-all, but that's not the case because that takes Jesus right out of the whole picture, doesn't it? Sometimes we, we spend more... Oh, gosh, listen. Listen to me. Sometimes we spend more time praying saints out of heaven instead of praying sinners into hell. Out of hell. We, 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 wanna, we want so badly, and this is our nature because we love... Our families, we love our, our friends, we love people. So we want to see them healed. But sometimes we spend so much time praying, ultimately, selfishly, I want them here. When sometimes it's better for them to be in the presence of Jesus. Do you think somebody that steps into the presence of Jesus Christ in heaven is going to ever volunteer to come back? And be in this mess? Zero out of however many times. Never. But, but sometimes our prayers are so focused that we want physical healing on earth instead of, well, maybe we should be, you know, what about praying for sinners to get them out of hell and going to heaven instead of praying 
Christian folks to stay out of heaven longer when that's where they're going. Does that make sense? I don't want to be confusing, but and because I know this is hard, because I'm going to tell you what. 22 years ago, God didn't heal my mama. A year ago, God didn't heal Darlene's mama on this earth. But he sure healed them, though. They're healed. They're just not here with us. I don't know why, but I do know this. When I read Scripture, I know it's right. I know it's true. I know God is always right. And so when I read this passage, here's what we have to avoid. Because sometimes we put maybe too much emphasis on the anointing with oil. Like that's symbolic. That's, that's symbolic. It's got some symbolic repercussions. But, but look what James says. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. What does James say in verse 15? After he said, hey, if somebody's sick, you call the elders. They should pray and they should anoint with oil. What does he say in verse 15? Does it say, and the anointing of oil will heal them? What's it say? The prayer of faith. You see that? So I want you to understand, the emphasis is not on the anointing. That is symbolic for us. We are setting this person aside for special care and attention from God. That's what we're praying for, special care and attention from God. But verse 15 tells us very clearly, the prayer of faith will heal them. So what's, what's the healing mechanism? It's God, first of all, but our prayer to him. And so when we, when we see verse 16 together with verse 15, this is why we confess our sins together. I kind of got off a little bit on that. that I, I wanted to touch on that, that idea of, of healing, but don't miss verse 16. That's why James tells us to confess our sins to one another. Because when verse 15 says, if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven, it presumes confession. You see that in verse 16? Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Okay, that, that, Those two verses go together. Then it says the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The effective prayer, the word is literally supplication, which means humble earnest request to God. What does righteous mean? The humble prayer of a righteous man. What does righteous mean? It means right before God, justified before God. Okay, so you're talking about a Christian praying humbly, earnestly to God, praying for the healing spiritually and physically of another person, of another person in the family of God. Okay, so we're talking about what, what should we do? Well, what was my point there? Pray and confess. What should we be doing for one another? We should be praying for each other, right? We should be confessing our sins to one another. Well, the praying part's easy, but what about the confession? See, I, I knew it was going to be real quiet right there. I knew nobody was going to say anything about confession because we don't want to do that, right? Because that's not easy. I can sit in my house or my office or anywhere else by myself and I can pray for everybody. But what happens when I... What happens when I offend somebody? What do I do? What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to go to them and confess my sin. I'm supposed to go and, and ask for forgiveness. I'm supposed to acknowledge the fact that, hey, I, I said something that may have offended you or I, did I, I didn't treat you the way I should have treated you. I'm sorry. 
confess your sins to one another. Why? What's the result? See verse 16? It says it twice. Well, it says it once, but applies to two, two things. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. That's the whole point, that you'll be healed. So that applies in back to verse 15. How is someone healed? A prayer of faith will heal them. So the prayer offered in faith. Well, here's the final warning about that. Well, I'm going to talk about Elijah in just a second. I know we got to go, but let, let me just tell you this. Sometimes preachers, writers, can put so much emphasis on, and, and look what James says there. Um, the prayer of faith will heal. Okay, And we, we just said a minute ago, is that healing always the way we think it's going to look like? It's not, right? It's not. Sometimes healing is, come home. You've run a good race. Come be with me, Jesus says. You're, you're fully healed. You, you don't have to mess with this anymore. You know, I, and and I, I'm, I don't mean to put her on the spot, but I'm going to just tell you, I can't think of anybody else. I mean, Darlene's mother is the one in my mind right now. I said when I met her, I said to myself and to a friend, she can't, there's no way she can be that nice. There's, people aren't like that. People aren't that sweet. People aren't that kind and generous and giving and selfless. People just, people aren't like that. But that's who she was. So I can picture fully, in my mind, this passage with relation to her experience and her heart problems and her hard life of suffering, I can picture with her Jesus saying, when we pray for her, please heal her. I can picture Jesus saying, all right, come on. You're healed. Done. She's in heaven. She's healed. But sometimes that doesn't look like how we want it to look. So sometimes preachers and writers make such a big deal out of this faith, prayer for faith, or prayer of faith, they insist that a believer just needs to have enough faith in order to receive healing. But here's the problem with that. The devastating result of thinking that way means that when you're not healed the way you suspect you should be healed and you've prayed in faith, what does that leave you thinking? Well, I guess I just didn't have enough faith. It's my fault. I didn't, I didn't believe enough. I didn't have enough faith to be healed. So then added to the fact that you still remain in your physical challenges, then you have an assumption that you lack the faith to be healed. But the problem with that is that's not biblical. That's not what the Bible says. Because God is in control, folks. And, and the minute we think he's not, then, then we got we got big problems. I, I don't want to live in a world if God's not in control. You understand what I'm saying? Because if, if we think, listen, if we think there's one single thing outside of the control of a sovereign creating God, then we may as well just throw the Bible out the window and forget what we're doing. You understand the conclusion of that? If we believe that God is not in control in any one spot, if he's, either he's sovereign over all creation or he's not sovereign over creation at all. We don't get to pick and choose when God is in control and when he's not. 
He is the almighty creator of everything that is. How could he not be in control? He's God. So, so we, can't, we, we can't get away from that. And when we, when we get to a point that we have a moment, we have a crisis of belief, and we, we struggle with different things. Like I mean, I've struggled with this passage. But when we get to that point, we always need to go back to what we know to be true about our God. Even when it is uncomfortable, even when it is difficult to fully believe and embrace and understand, God is sovereign over all creation. He is always in control. He created us. He loves us. He died for us. God is in control. Nothing happens without filtering through His hands. Either He allows it or He ordains it. Whatever the case, God is in control of it. And if we don't embrace that fact... That messes up everything else we believe. Because I'm not the creator. I don't, I'm not that important. God is. God is. So we can't afford to believe, well, I didn't have enough faith, or else the Bible said I would have been healed. It's, it's like an equation. Two plus two equals four. So if I believe enough and have enough faith, and I pray for this, that means absolutely God must heal me. God is not in my debt. That's a good statement to remember. We're in his debt. If you don't believe me, just look at the cross. Look at whose blood was shed. I'm in his debt. I'm eternally in his debt. Pray and confess that you may be healed. That healing may come in a form that we don't expect. And he closes that paragraph, that thought, with Elijah. He uses this illustration. Hey, Elijah, Elijah was a great prophet. Guess what? Just a man. Just a man like a human being. His nature, that, that word, nature, same as us. He didn't have any special juice, okay? Didn't have any special power. He prayed according to the will of God, when he was dealing with pagan people, Lord, hold back the rain. So what did God do? Because that was his plan. He prayed according to the will of God. It didn't rain for three and a half years. Then it says he prayed again uh, to the, according to the will of God that, that God had given him as the prophet, send the rain. And, and what happened? Heaven gave the rain. And it produced its fruit. Because that was God's plan. God is in control. He used Elijah to demonstrate his sovereignty over all creation. So Elijah was the vessel, but he's a man just like us. So we need to see that for what it is. We need to understand that we are, we are exercising faith by prayer that God, who sovereignly accomplishes his will, is going to do what he knows his best to do, even if we don't get it. Because I'm going to just tell you this, me understanding what God's doing and why is not a prerequisite to him doing what he's doing. He, he's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. If I don't understand it, okay, well, that's my fault. That's my problem. He's still in charge just because I don't understand. Well, God, why would you do that? Well, I don't remember God having to ask me for permission. Does this make sense to you? God's in control. Our prayers to God are mainly, why do we even pray then? Our main purpose in prayer 
is for God to do a work in us so that our agenda and plans are transformed into consistency with Him, with His agenda and plans. It's not to get a wish list. We don't, we don't pray to get what we want. We pray that God would do a work in us to make us want what He wants. Does that make sense? It's all about prayer is mainly communing with God that we would be changed to be more like Jesus. Think more like Jesus. Act more like Jesus. And want the things that Jesus wants. So that's why he says prayer of faith. Pray and confess. Number three, last one. Show spiritual care. Verses 19 and 20. He says this word again. My brethren, brothers and sisters, the body of Christ. He says, he assumes by what he says. Hey, did you know he's talking to the church? That means that we in the church may stray from the truth from time to time? I know you find that hard to believe, but guess what? It happens. Anybody in here ever strayed from the truth? You don't have to raise your hand. I'm just asking. I have. I have. I'm a sinner. Just like everybody else. So the reason he writes this to the church is to remind us just because we follow Jesus and we're in the body of Christ does not mean we will not make mistakes and stray from the truth. And what's supposed to happen when that happens? Read the text, verses 19 and 20. He says, turn them back to the truth. So not only should the readers of this letter, like if I read this letter and it says, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, so... When I'm reading this, I shouldn't, also, I shouldn't just be concerned that I'm doing the right thing. I should be concerned that all of you are doing the right thing. That's a family. If I don't care anything about you, then I don't care what you do. I don't care what happens to you. That's not a family. That's not Christian love. If I care about you, then I care what happens to you. And I care what your life looks like and I care whether or not your life glorifies Jesus or not because that's for your best interest to glorify Jesus that's a benefit for you so I don't just care that I do it I care that you do it and you should care the same thing about me and everybody else does that make sense that's what being in a spiritual family is all about it's called accountability he says if you turn back from the turn someone back to the truth You turn a sinner from the error of his way, you'll save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Well, guess what? Did you know that's what the Great Commission says? Have y'all read that lately? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Jesus said, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what else? Teaching them what? Just teaching them stuff? No, 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 no. He said, teaching them to observe all things I commanded you. So you're not just teaching them what he said, you're teaching them to do what he said. That's discipleship. That is the burden of biblical discipleship. I don't need to teach you what Jesus said. Now, I need to start with teaching you what Jesus said, but then I need to teach you to do what Jesus said. Does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying? This is the burden of discipleship. And this is what James is getting to in this last sentence. We should be accountable to one another and responsible for one another. That's what being in a family is about. If I don't love my kids, you know what I'm going to do? If I don't love them. 
All right, y'all do whatever you want. I don't care. Wait, but isn't this wrong? It doesn't matter. Just do whatever you want. Whatever you feel like. If it feels good, do it. Follow your heart. You ever heard that? It's the biggest bunch of junk I've ever heard in my life. Follow, follow your heart. You know what Jeremiah said? The heart is desperately sick and wicked. Who can understand it? Yeah, follow that. Okay, that'll end well. No, if I don't care about my kids at all, then I'm going to just turn them loose. Here, do whatever you want. But if I love them, if I care about what happens to them, what am I going to do? I'm going to guide them. Best we can, we're going to guide them in the direction of Jesus. This is, this is right before God. This is wrong before God. Follow the right path. If you do wrong, we will discipline you, and there will be consequences. But we will love you and point you in the path of Jesus. That's, that's what would happen if I love my kids. So what happens in a spiritual family? If we love each other, what are we going to do? We're going to show spiritual care for one another. We're going to show responsibility and direction for others. When we see someone straying from the truth, as James says, we're going to turn them back from the error of their ways. Now, what would it look like What would it look like if we didn't care at all about each other? Well, I really need to end this. I'm sorry. What would it look like if we didn't care anything about the rest of us? Oh, that's none of my business. Did you see what that? Yeah, but that's, I ain't getting involved in that. Too messy. But if you're in a, a spiritual family, what are you supposed to do? Put, put your arm around them, pull them to the side. Hey, what are you doing? You know this is not what God wants for us. You know this is not the plan that Jesus has for his children. Please, please come back to the truth. You know this, you know deep in your heart, you know this is wrong. Come back to the, to the right path because you love them and because you care about what happens to your family. That, that's what James is teaching us to do. We care about our family, so we show spiritual care. He says you'll cover a multitude of sins exactly what Peter said. 1 Peter 4, 8. Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. You know what John said? I'm sorry. John recorded what Jesus said in John 13, 35. By this, you will prove to be my disciples. How? Your love for one another. See, folks, this is, what, this is what a spiritual family looks like. This is what discipleship looks like. This is what James is calling us to do by his influence of the Holy Spirit. This is what he's calling us to do. Let me read this quote to you and we'll be finished. Charles Spurgeon wrote uh, a, a conclusion to this letter, to this paragraph. Here's what he says. He says, In the days of James, if anyone erred from the truth and from holiness, there were believers who sought their recovery and whose joy it was to save their soul from death. Because he who has erred was one of us, one who sat with us at the communion table. He's been deceived by Satan. Let us not judge him harshly. Above all, let us bring back the prodigal and make our father's heart glad. If he's not really a child of God, if his professed conversion was a mistake or a pretense, 
then we should grieve him all the more. For his doom must be the more terrible. But still, seek his conversion. That word for us, as children of God, we should tell the truth. Our words should mean something. We should pray for one another. We should confess our sins to one another. We should show that level of spiritual care for each other. Because that is what being a disciple of Christ is all about. We should prove ourselves by our love. And you know where it has to start? Right here in the church. The church is supposed to be an example for the world. We're not supposed to follow their lead.